Some made the long drop from the apartment or the office window. Some took it quietly in two-car garages with the motor running. Some used the native tradition of the Colt or Smith & Wesson, those well-constructed implements that end insomnia, terminate remorse, cure cancer, avoid bankruptcy, and blast an exit from intolerable positions by the pressure of a finger. Those admirable American instruments so easily carried, so sure of effect, so well designed to end the American dream when it becomes a nightmare. Their only drawback, the mess they leave for relatives to clean up. My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast. Um, hope you're all doing well. It looks beginning to look like gradually that we might be getting um, somewhere with this wretched pandemic and hopefully we can get back to a nor normal way of life quite soon. Um, I think one of the good things about this whole Sorry Affair is that uh, I have had a lot more time to watch films and TV and um, do other slightly more productive things like go for some lovely walks and runs and whatnot and also to be able to kind of sit down and record more episodes so hopefully the output um, will be increasing um, uh, over the next year or so so I'm going to try and kind of stick to a fairly um, regular schedule and and this episode I'm going to be taking a look uh, at Francis Truffaut's uh, the 400 Blows, which is a film I haven't watched for many years, and it was recently given another cinema release, and also a couple of Blu-rays that I can recommend. But I really wanted to begin um, by doing something I've never done on this podcast, which is to take a look at the film, uh, a film by Ken Burns. And in this case, I was for my my girlfriend for uh, my for Christmas this year bought me the new DVD release of one of uh, last year's films, um, Hemingway. So. I'm going to have a little bit of a look at that. So, last year I attempted to watch two documentaries. One was Amanda Milius's, who is the daughter of John Milius's, The Plot Against the President. And this was an expose of the smear campaign against President Trump, of whom she had tried to get elected. And the second was The Dissident, a documentary about the murder of the Saudi journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And... I was unable to finish either. Um, in the first instance, it was legitimately just an awful film. Absolute amateur garbage. And in the second, although there was an interesting story in there somewhere, they both suffered from the same affliction, which was the following. Both films had somehow come to the conclusion that the only way to make a documentary was to do the following. Never hold a shot or a sequence for more than three seconds, and at every available opportunity, litter the score with overly dramatic music to tell you exactly when something of significance was occurring. The result in both instances made the films to me unwatchable. I felt as if the filmmakers had watched too many episodes of 24 and decided that the only way to communicate with their audience was to bombard them with audiovisual stimulation. The style rendered my interest in the subject null and void. I simply wanted the films to breathe, to slow down, to allow the story to evolve. But no, both wanted to smack me over the head with revelation and bombast, and the result was total disengagement. 
I simply cannot take this type of filmmaking. And the reason is, I think it is actually really easy to do. I don't see any individuality or authorship in the creative process. You just get a soundbite that adds a little bit of juice to your story, chuck in some dramatic music and cut to the next scene and on and on it goes. And you often find that, and the role, and what you often find is that the participants in these documentaries, the kind of the experts and the talking heads, don't really seem to be expressing personal views or opinions, but they're simply reaffirming something which has just been said in the documentary. And a case in point on this would be Oliver Stone's new kind of deep dive into the Kennedy assassination, where the contributing participants are there to effectively that they, they will tell you that, well, that was out of the ordinary or throw a question out there that the audience has really very little chance of being able to answer. And the whole point is to kind of create this kind of like fog of mystery and intrigue. And with, and with that Oliver Stone film, I actually found it almost as, as big a work of a fiction as JFK. It was just throwing dots at you but there was nothing really that kind of connected anything it was just sort of basically felt like an echo chamber for the likes of formerly great journalists like John Pilger so they can kind of go you see that wasn't done on that day which is which was odd so therefore it must be a conspiracy and it's kind of laughable really and I just don't see the craft in it I feel more or less like I'm just watching, and the kind of I suppose the kind of the, the film student in me just kind of sits there completely unimpressed by the the technical prowess on display. And obviously, documentaries have agendas and biases, and why would they not? However, the approach and the style I admire so much from the likes of. Alex Gibney, Errol Morris, Asif Kapida, Werner Herzog, Adam Kurtick, Frederick Wiseman seems to be giving away more and more to films that they feel like they've been constructed by clicking a button on Premiere Pro that chucks in all the music and the, the dramatic cues and the, the cuts and whatnot and just spits out these generic rather boring documentaries and yet there is an antidote to all this and in 2018 I stood on the floor of the Yosemite Valley looking up at one of the natural wonders of the world and there was one very simple reason why I was there and that was because of the documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. Indeed Ken Burns' film The National Parks had made me want to get on a plane and go to America and if ever there was a documentary filmmaker whose films I could watch from now until the end of time, it is his. And this year's gift of Hemingway for Christmas seemed the perfect excuse for me to talk about his work. The driver started up the street. I settled back. Brett moved close to me. We sat close against each other. I put my arm around her and she rested against me comfortably. It was very hot and bright and the houses looked sharply white. We turned out onto the Gran Via. Oh, Jake, Brett said, we could have had such a damn good time together. Ahead was a mounted policeman in khaki directing traffic. He raised his baton, 
the car slowed, suddenly pressing Brett against me. Yes, I said. Isn't it pretty to think so? For the uninitiated, Ken Burns really came into the public sphere and consciousness with his series about the American Civil War. And he makes films exclusively for PBS in America and over the years has covered topics from country music to the making of the Brooklyn Bridge. His films are about America, what it is, what it was, what it can be, and recurring themes are race, human rights, important individuals throughout its history, from sports to architects, and of course all shot through with a very distinct directorial style. The Ken Burns effect, as it is known to those who knew Final Cut Pro, is a process by which the camera tracks and pans over still images recurring audible motifs and an altogether slower, more thoughtful pace to his films are the normal. And they can range from one hour to 16 hours and Burns along with directing partner Lynn Novak tell stories in their own time and quite frankly, many may bulk at this. 16 hours on country music may feel like a bit of a slog, but trust me, come the end, you will be a paid up member of the Grand Old Opry. And Hemingway, is a three-part profile of one of America's most celebrated writers. And I suppose when I first heard about this film being made, I probably wasn't as interested as I thought I might be. And that's really because of my own ignorance. I've only ever read um, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and I didn't really know a great deal about Hemingway's life. But as with most Ken Burns films, very quickly, and thanks to his and Novick's film style and grammar, it proved to be another near-perfect film for me. The lesson I've learned with Ken Burns is to trust him. You have to be patient with his films. You can't be checking your phone or wondering what you're having for dinner. His films, and I think the key to enjoying and appreciating them, is pay them the utmost respect with your attention and often you will be greatly rewarded for your effort. And I feel with Hemingway, it's worth saying from the off that I think this is easily the most downbeat of Ken Burns' films. The subject himself is voiced by Jeff Daniels and is perhaps slightly problematic, um, especially, and it's an especially interesting choice in today's climate. Hemingway was a serial philanderer, a heavy drinker, a hunter of game animals, at times a terrible father, abusive, racist, and was not unaccustomed to occasionally hitting and verbally abusing his various wives, but he was also one of the most important writers of the last century, and certainly in American literature. And there is, I think, at the culture at large, a growing call for the reappraisal of problematic icons from history to either dismiss entirely, or at the very least in the case of John Wayne, to take comments he made and apply kind of retrospective horror that someone born in 1907 said something in the 60s that would today be seemed controversial. So what the film does is it doesn't excuse Hemingway or indeed try and justify his behaviour to make him seem slightly more palatable. You are instead, and I think refreshingly so, treated like an adult because the film, the, because the people making the film are themselves mature enough to know that art and its creator often have a troubling relationship. And indeed, it's one of the, f it's often the flaws in Burns's subjects that make him, that make them so compelling. From Teddy Roosevelt's depression to the possible confession of a Vietnam veteran, they actively took part in the shooting of POWs. Burns films are not afraid to take you places that are uncomfortable and they are more the better for it. 
Hemingway's life was easy, is easy to romanticise, a keen traveller and adventure. There were spells in France, in Spain, Cuba, Florida, various wars, hunting trips involving multiple plane crashes. He suffered several serious head injuries and with a family history of depression and a portrait emerges over the three episodes of a man clearly suffering quite severe mental trauma. I went to the door of the room. You can't come in now, one of the nurses said. Yes, I can, I said. You can't come in yet. You get out, I said, the other one too. But after I had got them out and shut the door and turned off the light, it wasn't any good. It was like saying goodbye to a statue. After a while, I went out, left the hospital, and walked back to the hotel in the rain. Parts of A Farewell to Arms could have been written by a woman. Now, I regard that as a compliment. Hemingway might regard it as an insult, but I don't. Because it is the androgyny in a man or a woman that allows them, even if briefly, not utterly, to be able to put themselves inside the skin of the opposite thing. In many ways, I think it's his greatest novel. I do. It's the truest. It's also heartbreaking. I remember crying and crying and crying. He gets the all the the boy's stuff, the man's stuff. He gets the horror of the war. But when people put that book down, what do they remember? They remember a woman dying in childbirth. If people bring so much courage to this world, the world has to kill them to break them. So of course, it kills them. The world breaks everyone. And afterward, many are strong at the broken places. But those that will not break, it kills. It kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave, impartially. If you are none of these, you can be sure it will kill you too. But there will be no special hurry. And of course, it doesn't excuse some of what he does. But you do rather feel that were he alive today and he may have benefited from modern medicine and psychiatric treatment. What, what, what is completely undeniable is how simply extraordinary a life his was. And it's impossible, I think, not to be swept away in the romanticism of Hemingway's life. And from the film score to Jeff Daniels' readings, and of course, photos of Hemingway in various cafes with friends or witnessing some piece of history. The film actually makes for some of the most rewarding escapist entertainment I've had in quite a while. The footage filmed in his old house in Cuba is actually beautiful. Indeed, this is one of the best looking of Ken Burns and Lynn Novak's films. And for the records, I think the national parks, I think given its um, subject matter, probably lends itself to being the best looking film he'd ever made. But History comes alive in this film. The house in Cuba may be empty in its contemporary form, but at times you can easily imagine that Hemingway was just out of shot or in another room as the camera glides around in the dust light. And it's the rhythm of the filmmaking that makes Burns and Novick's film so engrossing. 
the camera actually managed to stay on a subject. In this case, it'd be something as benign as a typewriter, but it lets you take it in. This is an instrument through which a writer created his world, his characters, where his imagination poured out. And the fact that we're not chopping and cutting every five seconds allows you to actually digest, contemplate and think. In short, you can breathe and let the, tra the documentary transport you away. Now, I openly admit I knew very little about Hemingway's life before I watched this film. And I have no idea why his writing was so revered. And this being a documentary film, it's interesting about how much it celebrates the written word. Many passages are read out by Daniels and the camera glides over his notebooks as the words appear on the screen. And if ever there was a TV series that made you want to read, then this is it. But what I loved most was how the film and the subjects being interviewed educated you as to why these prose and Hemingway's style what are so important. The river was there. It swirled against the log piles of the bridge. Nick looked down into the clear brown water, colored from the pebbly bottom, and watched the trout keeping themselves steady in the current with wavering fins. As he watched them, they changed their positions by quick angles, only to hold steady in the fast water again. Nick watched them a long time. It was a hot day. A kingfisher flew up the stream. It was a long time since Nick had looked into a stream and seen trout. They were very satisfactory. I loved it. I love the description of the scenery without saying anything about his inner situation he had some hurt or something bad it was inside of himself. By following his description of the landscape and what he does, we feel he is cured, healed. I am not a literary scholar. I read books and I know what I like, and I've always enjoyed learning. And then with this film, I actually felt Novigan Burns have managed to both entertain and inform an equal measure, which is something they, I, I think they do quite easily anyway. But it just seemed to be slightly more apparent in this. I actually kind of w walked away and I, I, I bought some of Hemingway's books and have been reading them and kind of really seeing on paper what they're talking about in the film. And what's interesting is the variety of opinions from the subjects that are being interviewed. Writer Edna O'Brien may love Hemingway, but it doesn't stop her from voicing her criticism of some of his works. Um, I was so, so when I read For, For Whom the Bell Tolls. And many, I, I did read some kind of people kind of objecting to the fact that John McCain um, was being interviewed, um, talking about his admiration for For Whom the Bell Tolls. And I found his personal enjoyment roughly aligned with the very reasons that I was not particularly interested in. But that's the subjectness of art, the subjectiveness of art, sorry. We all bring something to the table and consume it in different ways. And, and the series is split over three episodes. And I certainly found, I think, the, the episodes two and three slightly more engaging. Although the important backstory um, in episode one mainly deals with childhood and adolescence before we kind of get into the more adventurous subject of his life, which we see in episodes two and three. And what I think I, I notice, especially with this Hemingway documentary, is how it intersects and with 
his other works, there's The Roosevelt's, The Depression, The Second World War, Mark Twain. These are all topics that have been featured in his films before. And I really got the impression that, I, kind of, I suppose, when we think about the Marvel Universe, that you, you, there is now a kind of place where I think it's the Ken Burns is America. And I think this film slotted so well into that world. And of course, props, you have to give um, credit to... Peter Coyote on narration duties. This series was written by Burns' regular collaborator, Jeffrey C. Ward. And Peter Coyote's delivery of the lines is what is so often the difference in these films from being mere narration to an essential part of the experience of watching the film. The slight pauses in the delivery, the way in which Ward's writing builds and moments of dramatic tension or emotional impact, and indeed humour seems so effortless. And at times you end up hanging on every word Coyote utters. I'm not sure I can place his accent. I think he was born in New York, but it's a voice that is now synonymous with Burns' work and it's hard to imagine one of his films without it. No writer who knows the great writers who did not receive the prize can accept it other than with humility. Writing at its best is a lonely life. Organizations for writers palliate the writer's loneliness but I doubt if they improve his writing. He grows in public stature as he sheds his loneliness and often his work deteriorates. For he does his work alone and if he is a good enough writer, he must face eternity or the lack of it each day. It is because we have had such great writers in the past that a writer is driven far out past where he can go, out to where no one can help him. I have spoken too long for a writer. A writer should write what he has to say and not speak it. Again, I thank you. Now, Hemingway may be a bit of a downer of film, but that in no way, shape or form meant to be a slight or dissuade you from watching it. If you love literature, adventure and learning, then Hemingway is a damn near perfect way of spending a few hours on a Sunday. I don't recommend watching the film on the BBC. It's currently been cut into six parts and you can only pick up the DVD in the United Kingdom and not the Blu-ray. But I'm pleased to report that on home video, Burns films tend to really make for an engaging experience. Audibly, you will find a quite robust 5.1 soundtrack, and though the images may not be up to the Blu-ray, it's still a gorgeous film to look at and more than a worthy addition to the Burns filmography. Now, if you say to me a film is a classic and that I should most definitely watch it, this often will put me off purely because I have this bizarre flaw in my personality where as soon as someone tells me something as a fact or that I should do something or that I need to do something, it's almost like the barriers come down and I'm like, I'm not interested. So in the context of film, this has manifested itself this way. Um, Sight and Sound in its best films ever poll a few years ago put Vertigo as the best film ever made. And I like these kind of, these 
top 10 poll type things. I think it's a really interesting and engaging way sometimes of discovering new films or indeed reappraising films that you have seen before. And I went back and I watched Vertigo and I'm still not sure about it. I, I honestly don't know what to think of Vertigo. I know it's definitely nowhere near being one of my favourite Hitchcock films. And to say it's the best film ever, um, I, 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 I just don't get it. I, I don't understand how many people have come to that conclusion. But there is definitely, I think, another way of looking at it is perhaps I'm just yet to connect with it in the way that these other people have. And that might come with future screenings. I'm not entirely sure. But one thing I think we definitely can say is that Vertigo is probably a better film than Big Mama's House. I think I think that's an objective fact. Some people, I, I dare say Armand White would probably have something to say about that. Indeed, I'm, I'm sure he could um, write 10,000 words on why Big Mama's House is actually better than Vertigo. But it's certainly not Citizen Kane, is it? Let's be completely honest. However, one film I can definitely say is a classic and I can understand why people call it a classic and why it's celebrated as a classic is Francis Truffaut's The 400 Blows. Now, I first saw the film at university and it was it was in my first year and it was I was, I was sort of transitioning from being a fan of films and I make no qualms about it. I was very much a Michael Mann, Steven Spielberg type of a person when I went to university. And there was a kind of a slow, gradual process of discovering new filmmakers and appreciating their work. And Truffaut came quite early on. I can't remember what course it was, but um, I definitely remember watching The 400 Blows. And I was really, really taken with it. It's definitely my favourite film of the French New Ways. And I simply enjoy this one more than others. And of course, I admire the other films like, like Breathless by Godard and things like that. But I've always gravitated back to The 400 blows and it had been a good while since I'd actually seen it and it's recently had another cinema release so I decided it was a, a, a good opportunity to revisit and there were two things that really struck me about going back to it. Um, number one, I, I, I'd forgotten that this was Francis Truffaut's debut and I, that, that just completely had bypassed me for some reason and going back and watching it and seeing the how assured a debut it is and it, and it's and it's technical competency i think it was actually quite amazing to me that someone so young had made this film and the other thing as well was in fact it was made in 1959 and again i just i just assumed it was a lot more um it wasn't as old as as, as 1959 once i kind of realized how old the film was and it was this was his debut I was, of course, amazed because Francis Truffaut is a cinephile through and through. I mean, he, he was one of those rare directors who went from kind of film criticism and to becoming a, a filmmaker and a writer in his own right. And I think the story of The 400 Blows is fairly well known. Um, we follow the character of Anton Donnell, who's loosely based on Truffaut and played by Jean-Pierre Lyard. Um, he's not that great at school. His mum and stepdad are kind of they're not they're their kind of parents in I, I think a part-time capacity and certainly there's a an absence of love and I think affection in his life and he is a kid who is 
drifting towards delinquency. He lies, he steals, he skips school, and he eventually ends up um, being arrested and sent to reform school. Now, in modern times, I think filmmakers often equate misery with realism. Paddy Constantine's Tyrannosaur, uh, one of the worst films I've ever seen, or, uh, unwatchably awful, or Cleo Bernard's The Selfish Giant, another hideous example of a film that thinks it's educating you about the other side of life. And they think that they're shining this spotlight on this world that's just around the corner from you, that's you know, hidden within plain sight. And they offer no solutions to this and are only interested in trying to impart guilt onto the viewer. And in a way you feel like you're being preached to, only I don't think they do anything. They are vapid, boring works that offer nothing of anything which we can take away from them. And more often than not, they are so blandly directed as if somehow this aesthetic is going to complement the misery you're watching on, on, on film. And they, they're almost like anti-cinema as far as I'm concerned. But The 400 Blows is pure cinema in its most joyous form and it's not all doom and gloom either. Truffaut peppers the film with light-heartedness, there's a family trip to the cinema, some genuine affection occasionally, humour, um, Anton and his friends saying bonjour madame to a man, the PE teacher systematically losing the kids one by one as they jog through Paris. Yet yeah, it is a melancholy film for sure and Jean-Pierre Lillard looks like he's had a hard life. He doesn't wallow in self-pity but you can tell that there's a soul that is deserving in there of a bit more love, a bit more luck and a gentle arm around his shoulder as opposed to the hard knocks that is often the recipient of. And when even when he tries to do the right thing it more often than not comes back to bite him. And as a child Francis Truffaut found solace in the cinema and through this film, one feels he's sort of exercising some of those early demons. And despite his tone, the 400 Blows is a celebration of, it's the medium which Francis Foutreau believed had actually saved him from his life. Its dedication, I think, to the critic Andre Bazin is both touching and telling. Touching because it was Bazin who encouraged and inspired him, and telling because Truffaut has made a film that is also a love letter to the medium itself. And it's why I wanted to talk to, so not so much about the film's content, but its style and its aesthetics. Now, The 400 Blow was shot on 35mm using um, dialoscope anamorphic lenses. And despite its subject matter, which possibly would make some directors go for a more square academy framing, Francis Trot and director of photography Henri Decree make the film feel huge. This is a wide image and the shots are composed in a way that make full use of the widescreen frame. There are such wonderful movements to the camera. The opening where we first meet Antoine in the classroom follows a picture of a girl from one child's desk and they'll get a sneak peek before it gets to Antoine who is caught by the teacher and sent to the corner. It's a wonderful one take shot that perfectly sets up the character. He's always the kid that gets caught and doesn't get away with it. And the compositions are sublime. Anton lying on a sofa reading Balzac smoking a fag with a roll neck on, sorry, is the most French thing I can ever think of. And on the big screen, the child takes on a giant-like persona, lounging away, dreaming up one of his schemes, this time to cheat at his homework. 
You can just stare at the screen and rejoice at the cinematic glory of it all and what you feel, Antoine feels too. This is the boy in love with the movies who is most likely mimicking his heroes on screen. The appreciation of cinema becomes infectious in that regard. The director, his characters and you all marvelling at the sheer joy of watching films. The 400 Bros also remind me the impact music has had on film. And of course, even in the silent years, there was most likely been musical accompaniment, even in the form of a soloist playing away and sometimes with sheet music provided by the studio. But with the introduction of sync sound, of course, cinema style changed too. Directors began to cut scenes, especially with music in mind. In the form of 400 Blows, there is one sequence in particular that really brought home just how important the stylistic development was for filmmakers. After Antoine has been taken by the police by his stepfather, he is placed in the back of the van with some prostitutes and driven away. He clutches at the bars, looking at the Paris night. The camera follows behind him, sometimes catching up with him, staring out of the van. We cut to POV of the streets, the lights, and then back to tears begin to flow from his cheeks. From starting off quite jaunty, the score becomes quite romantic, even a bit uplifting, before changing tone and becoming far more melancholic. is compound the sadness of the character. This time he has really blown it. Those streets where he roams so free are now off limits. Any paternal love gone. He is imprisoned and let's be honest he was actually putting the item he stole back when he got caught. Yet Antoine is someone who just doesn't get the breaks and it's all there. Not a word is said just images and sound coming to make a truly memorable and quite heartbreaking scene. And I think the film overall is really part of a series of films in which the form of film changed. It is the passing from the old to the beginning of the more modern director. Indeed, many believe this was one of the defining signifiers of the new wave, When and with this example, it's hard to disagree. Another shot that truly stood out for me was when Antoine is interrogated at the reform school, framed in a mid-shot sitting at a desk, off screen, he's asked a variety of questions, and whilst watching it, I experienced something I don't actually think has ever occurred before. I actually felt as if the film had broken the fourth wall, 
not in a deliberate way, but something in my mind was triggered where suddenly felt that the film was no longer a piece of fiction. It was if I was watching a documentary or footage from some kind of experiment. I was taken out of the fiction and into reality, which is the complete opposite of what normally happens when you suddenly become aware of a film's artifice or not as this case was. And for me, I think it's one of the great mysteries of how films sometimes get to us. But just watch the scene and Jean-Pierre Lord's acting is incredible. He avoids eye contact as he tells his lies, nervously fidgets with paper in front of him, trying not to give much away and simultaneously hoping the interviewer is buying his stories. You don't see who Antoine is talking to. Instead, there's the odd fade that barely register but indicate that time is moving on in the scene. And again, it, it, it felt like some footage that was captured at an actual interview Indeed, this is, may have been a kind of mock interview is how they managed to do this. But at that point, I think 400 Blows became more than just a film. That, that character, despite being a fictional creation, existed for me in that moment, which made what is to follow all the more impactful. Because, of course, this is a film that the ending of this film is possibly one of cinema's most celebrated moment and that that shot of Antoine staring into the camera as it freezes and zoom in is actually as far as I'm concerned a piece of film grammar in its own right now I've seen so many other films most notably Shane Meadows this is England use that shot and I don't even consider it plagiarism anymore it's a shot that literally shows the moment a child is transitioning into manhood and I have no issue with people doing this I don't, I don't think it's it's copying I just think it's simply so effective and you and you know exactly what the camera is saying as that moment happens and the, the moments leading up to that as well I think are actually incredible because Anton escapes from a playing field and begins to run and he's pursued by um, I think one of the, the, the kind of the managers and he he manages to avoid being captured and there's no dialogue, no music, just the sound of birds singing as he determinedly runs with the camera tracking him as he moves down a country lane. He's no criminal mastermind. His gang aren't waiting for him in a getaway car. He's just a child after all. But you are rooting for him as he, and as the shot goes on long enough, you see the child in him again, simply running like kids do. And when we cut, the camera pans left showing an estuary and a beach. Music comes on the soundtrack. It's upbeat and playful before the familiar tones come in that we heard from the back of that police van. As he shuff and as he shuffles onto the beach, the camera begins to track with him. We see that boy again. This is the first visit to the beach he's ever made. And then we pan right. He's now at the shore. There is nowhere else for him to go. He paddles in the water a bit and turns and the image freezes and zooms in on that face childhood in one beautifully controlled and framed shot has ended and as the word Finn appears on the screen I was suddenly back in the world of reality the 400 blows is a film after all and that final shot makes you realize that everything that has gone before is leading up to that pitiful moment on the beach the boy has gone in that shot and it's a look that we never see Anton have in the film what is going through his mind in that moment? Is there a hint of accusation as well in what Truffaut was saying with the shot? He repeatedly said that the cinema saved his life over the course of his childhood, but 
Who's going to be there for Anton in that moment? He's alone, lost. Where does he go next? It's a perfect moment and cinema. And even after all these years, quite extraordinarily powerful and remind me of the medium's ability to move and provoke us. And I think The 400 Blows for me on this viewing has become one of my favourite films. It's a quite brilliant work and the love and mastery of the form that Truffaut had at such an age is quite staggering. I don't think it feels dated at all. I think its influence can be seen to this day. And in fact, I was thinking about the films of Sean Baker, like Tangerine and The Florida Project as I watch it, both films that depict working class life. And in both instances managed to actually be wholly cinematic experiences that need to be seen on the biggest screen possible. For Truffaut's gift, it seems, was reminding us that yes, cinema can show us the more unglamorous side of life but by god it can show the true wonder of the moving image especially when we see it how it is meant to be seen in the cinema with an audience inspiring and moving us and i can confidently say that the 400 blows is a classic film um, i can definitely recommend uh picking up the artificial eye box set i've got all the anton Donnell films and i haven't actually watched the other ones but and i know it sounds really weird but I, I, i'm just worried that they're going to somehow tarnish the 400 blows for me so but I, i'm going to get over that i think i'm going to i'm going to do a, a a weekend of them but the sound and image on the blu-ray is absolutely fantastic i know you can pick it up on criterion as well um which as i understand was uh the, the prints for that were taken from the same ones that were used on the artificial eye so um you, there's not going to be a huge difference in the image quality what one you pick up so that was the 400 blows so that's pretty much going to be it for this episode um i do want to get into the regular habit though um of rounding things off with just some kind of physical media recommendations and i've got two for you before i sign off and these aren't going to be in-depth reviews of the films at all but moreover just um two films that i watched which may not may not be of interest the first was the warner archives uh release of ivanhoe on blu-ray and I, I i didn't really know a whole heap about this film and i i, I suspect it might have been given a release i think it came out in december on warner archives um to kind of cash in possibly with uh, Ridley Scott's The Last Jewel. There is a similar, um, I suppose, narratively not like for like, but I think they're, they're taking place very much in the same world. Um, and I have to say, Ivanhoe was an absolute revelation to me. This is one of the most fun films I've seen in absolutely ages. It's a nice companion film to something like um, The Adventures of Robin Hood, but it's slightly more serious actually than I think. Um, starring Robert Taylor, um, Elizabeth Taylor, Joan Fontaine, um, George Sanders and Emlyn Williams and it was directed by Richard Thorpe and released in 1952. You, you rather wonder this film doesn't it came out just before kind of cinema went wide and I wonder how, how it would have looked in, in something like Cinemascope but it was um, filmed using the Technicolor process and I have to say that the Blu-ray of this is absolutely staggering and I mean, I think there's so, I mean, I know we're in the age of UHD now, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to do an episode on UHD, Blu-ray and all that type of thing, my kind of thoughts on it. But some of the close-up shots in this film on Blu-ray were just absolutely incredible. I, I, I cannot imagine this film looking any better, even if you saw it at the cinema. I was watching it upstairs in the film room and it was projected on 1080p. And I actually had to pause it a couple of times just to kind of take it all in. And it, it, it was, it's, it's magical. I, I, I really 
cannot recommend getting hold of it enough and just for the picture quality alone and also you're getting a really good fun film um i know it's part of a kind of an unofficial um trilogy made by the same kind of crew um freddie young was actually the cinematographer on this and uh certainly it's one of the most beautiful looking of, of his films but the other film sorry by the way in that trilogy are the knights of the round table and the adventures of quinton duard i've not actually seen or heard of any of those films but i think on the strength of ivanhoe i'm going to check it out so that's ivanhoe on warner archives the next up was a one which i'm going to recommend with caveats and i'm a huge fan of the films and uh, both directed and written by john melius and our academy have put out his debut film uh, dillinger about the famous american gangster and th this film I, I think it kind of you certainly see a lot of the themes that run through milius's work it is incredibly violent i mean to the point where i mean i'm no prude but i'd almost say the violence is gratuitous and i was and when i say it's gratuitous I felt it was violence for violence sake. I don't, and I think what this film struggles from, were it made at the same time of Bonnie and Clyde and the Wild Bunch, I think I would have a lot more interest and time for it. But it was made several years afterwards. And I think it, it just sort of feels like um, a homage to those films, um, in, including, I suppose, the casting of Warren Oates as, as Dillinger, who is really good in this film. Um, I just... He's such an underrated actor, I think, Warren Oates. But I, I did enjoy it, but I, you know, the, the features on it aren't particularly uh, that great. And I think I paid like 18 quid for it. And I think at 18 pounds, um, as a curiosity piece, this might be worth one that's waiting for it to come down in price. I know Arrow do do um, sales. And uh, I, I, I would consider picking it up if you're a John Milius fan, perhaps when that price point comes down. But overall, that's going to be it for this episode of 24 Framescast. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, there will be another James Bond episode going up on the um, blog. I'll let you know in the episode when in the next episode sorry, when that's done. That'll be on GoldenEye. And I'm going to be returning very soon. Um, just I'm, I'm, I'm doing a top 10 of 2021 list. I didn't want to release it straight away because I wanted to go back and actually kind of watch... Um, some, some films again to see what I thought of them. And... Rather annoyingly, I, um, I really struggled to get to the cinema to see um, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story back in December. And I have managed to go and watch it now. So I wanted to see that before I kind of finished off my top 10 list. But that won't be very long um, in coming out. And there'll be some more Master Cinema cast as well. So many thanks for listening and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.